join me in prayer, if you will, please. Our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this wonderful day, for this time of year, for coming in from celebrating your resurrection and the power you have, Lord. Help us to claim it every day that in our world, as dark as it is, as ugly as it was during those plagues and as harsh as it seems today, we still have the power of God at our access just by breathing your name, Lord. Thank you for that power. And we're going to see it again today, how joyous it is to know that you are a sovereign God over all that's going on. And you've pulled this word of God together for us today so that we might love you more and understand you and follow you better. Cover your servant, Catherine. Use her today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you would, open up your Bibles, please, to Exodus 11. And we're going to try to cover all the way through 1236. The title for our lesson is The Passover Plague on Firstborns. Passover Plague. You know, we covered all nine last time, and we saved the tenth for today because the tenth is the apex. It's the one that finally got that stubborn man to say, okay, get out of here. Take your people, Moses, and get out of here. Well, to alleviate the sufferings of his people, you know what the Lord God Almighty could have done? What could he have done? He could have easily slain that old stubborn Pharaoh, hard-hearted Pharaoh. They could have just taken him out of here, and that would have been that. That would have ended. And because he is the one who sets up kings and pharaohs and presidents, he could have put another pharaoh in on the throne of Egypt who would restore favor, as Joseph's pharaoh had, and comfort and safety to the Hebrew people. God could have done that, couldn't he? Because he can do whatever he so well pleases. But that would not have been enough to really deliver, truly, genuinely deliver Israel. Because what was really needed for the sons and daughters of Abraham and Jacob was for them to forsake it, uh, Egypt. They needed to get Egypt out of themselves. You know, they had long overstayed their welcome. Yeah, that's, what, that's the problem. They got too comfortable in Egypt. They liked garlic and leeks too much because they were only there for a seven-year famine. And once it was over, they should have left. And then they would have avoided all of this affliction that they had been suffering for 400 years. But they got comfortable. And they also had turned to Egypt's, many of them had turned to Egypt's gods and goddesses. So they needed to leave Egypt and they needed to get Egypt out of them. Old things, old interests, old affections had to pass away and all things needed to become new. Israel, as is true of all people, needed a new beginning. Her deliverance from Egypt was necessary. It was necessary for one thing because God had made a a promise, a covenant promise to Abraham long ago. And part of that covenant promise included giving his descendants the land. Did they own the land yet? The land of Canaan? No, they were nomads. They didn't own any land. They weren't officially even yet a nation. If you want to talk about technically, they weren't a nation. They were an enslaved people without freedom. They They didn't even have land, so they were not a nation. Now, in the previous lesson, we did see God demonstrate his absolute authority and power over all of Egypt. And she had a slew of gods and goddesses. But he showed his power over all of her false gods and goddesses as he poured out the first nine plagues on not only Pharaoh, but on the Egyptian people and on the land. Her crops were destroyed by 
such things as hail and locusts. Her cattle were all destroyed by that murrain disease and also by hail. Her people were afflicted with bloody water to drink and frogs. How can you forget the frogs that all croaked at the same time? And lice and swarms of flies or dung beetles, whatever they were swarms of, and painful boils all over their bodies. And then the people were, you know, definitely frightened by that thick, eerie darkness that covered the land for three days. So it was pretty, the calamities that threatened Egypt, her prosperity, and her continued existence. Can you imagine if God had decided to send her 20 plagues? There'd be nothing left of Egypt. I mean, it, that was devastating. That uh, She's never, somebody asked me yesterday, has she ever recovered? No, I've been to Egypt. She has not yet recovered. It's a pretty sad place to visit. It's depressing to go to Egypt. And she was once so mighty and magnificent. But the uh, with all that she experienced, the Hebrews were supernaturally spared. Especially the one that amazes me is the darkness over the land, and yet they had light in their homes. We talked about that. That's, that is a real miracle. Nevertheless, you know, seeing his nation just being destroyed and seeing the Hebrews not affected, yet Pharaoh continued to do what? You talked about it in your groups. Continued. What a stubborn man. Continued to harden his heart until the cup of iniquity was full. Now the Lord, before he had ever sent any of the plagues on Egypt, the Lord had warned Pharaoh long ago that what he warned him what would happen if he did not obey him through Moses and Aaron by letting his people go. And this was back in chapter 4, verse 23. He had told Pharaoh that if he refused to let his son, God's son, go, and God was speaking about Israel, then what would he do? He said, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. So he had had a warning about this. You know that Israel is actually a type of Christ? Israel, the nation, is a picture of Christ? Do you know in Hosea 11.1, it says, God says, I will call my son out of Egypt. So a lot of people thought, how is the Messiah? They knew that was messianic. How's the Messiah going to come out of Egypt? Well, you know, they say, well, he was talking about Israel. And he was. He was talking about Israel because he did call his son Israel out of Egypt. But then when Jesus was born, what happened? Herod the Great wanted to, well, he did slaughter the innocents in Bethlehem because he was trying to kill the Christ child. So Joseph got word from God to leave and go to Egypt. And so he was there until Herod the Great died. And then God called his son out of Egypt. You know, it was definitely a messianic prophecy. Israel is a picture of Christ. Well, Christ was not only physically called out of Egypt, but he was spiritually called out of Egypt. Egypt pictured the world. He came into the world, but then he was called out of the world. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? I'm off my notes, so I'm in trouble here. (laughs) You thought, I didn't hear this yesterday, did you? (laughs) When he was up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Lord, and he allowed three of his inner disciples to see his glory, his deity glory shine through, you know, it was veiled in flesh. And he was up there and he was talking to two Old Testament figures. Who were they? Moses and Elijah. And do you know what their conversation was about? They were talking about his decease it says in English, but the word decease in Greek is actually exodus. 
They were talking about his exodus from Egypt because he would. And he, for the joy set before him, he was looking forward to exiting this Egypt, wasn't he? And getting out of here and returning to the glory that he had with his father before him. And he also knew the joy set before him was that all his sheep would go with him. Just like Moses took all the sheep of Israel with him. Jesus did. So Jesus is a type. He is the fulfillment of Israel. Israel pictures him in many ways, not in her sins, but in many other ways. Well, the 10th and final plague is described for us by the Lord in chapter 11. He said uh, that he would go out. This is the Lord speaking. He would go out into the midst of Egypt about the midnight hour and the firstborn of Egypt would die from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the maidservant, to the firstborn of even all the beasts, whatever beasts were left, because a lot of beasts got wiped out. But even if you had a dog, the firstborn puppy. How many of you are firstborns here? Firstborn in your... Oh, my word! I am too. That's a lot of firstborn. We'd all be gone, guys, (laughs) with this plague. (laughs) Uh, And he said there never, ever was such a great whale cry that uh, would come forth out of the land of Egypt and never since as that night of the Passover. And that's in verse 6. But then he also said, none of the children of Israel nor their animals would be afflicted. Verse, afflicted, affected, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) by this plague. So again, Israel was going to be spared. And... He says in verse 8 that it would be so bad, this 10th plague would be so bad that Pharaoh's own officials would actually go to Moses, bow down before Moses, and beg him to take his people and leave Egypt. That, of course, was not music to Pharaoh's ears. He did not like hearing that, and he got very upset. But Moses was very upset, too. Look at the end of verse 8. It says, and he went out, that's Moses, from Pharaoh in a great anger. Moses has come a long way since that stuttering guy at the burning bush. He is now a leader respected by both his own people who rejected him at first and the Egyptians who rejected him at first because he took the side of the Hebrews. You know, he had to go in Midian for 40 years. Now he comes back and, man, he is, he's the leader we think of when we think about Moses. It says, uh, look at uh, verse 3. It says, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. So not only the Hebrews, but the Egyptians admired Moses for his leadership skills. So he has definitely, definitely grown. So um, eleven, chapter 11, that's about all I'm going to say. Can you believe I went through a chapter that quickly? That has got to be a miracle right there. (laughs) It's only 10 verses long, um, and that's all I'm going to say about it. But chapter 12 makes up for the difference because chapter 12 is a very long chapter. It's got 51 verses. It's an important chapter of the scripture. Exodus chapter 12, very important because it contains God's instructions regarding the original Passover. As well as, if you look at verse 14, the memorial Passover that the Hebrew people were to celebrate every year after the original 10th plague Passover, they were to commemorate what God did 
in delivering them, in redeeming them, in setting them free every year thereafter. It was an ordinance that they were to celebrate forever, it says. Forever is forever. So I guess we'll be celebrating. You and I will get to celebrate. We almost should celebrate because it was a miracle. I don't know why Christians don't. We really should. Well, we do because that's the day Christ died too so um but i guess we'll be celebrating it in the millennial kingdom so we'll just get used to it if we do have a seder we'll figure out you know what they're doing and we have practice we'll have a practice for the millennial kingdom but you know they didn't celebrate it for a long the hebrews were not very obedient it i i found out that from throughout the judges you know the book of judges And throughout the kings, both of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they did not celebrate the Passover. Or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which came next, they didn't celebrate. It wasn't until King... Very good. You get a gold star. Give her a free Daniel book. Uh, The first one, you know, the little cheap one. Brandy, okay, you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Not the big full one. <laughs> uh, yeah, King Josiah actually brought back the Passover. How did you know that? I'm really impressed. She reads her Bible. You do, good girl. And you didn't cheat with a cell phone either. <laughs> oh, you teach Sunday. That's a good way to learn the Bible, yes. Actually, if somebody was thinking Hezekiah, you are also right. Because he did bring it back temporarily, but then they started forgetting about it again. So, but that's two good kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, brought back the Passover celebration. Um, so anyway, back to chapter 12. Chapter 12 contains the, direction, the instructions from God about the original Passover, about the memorial Passover. It, it talks about, for the first time, introduces us to the subsequent seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread that was also to be celebrated throughout Israel's history. It is also the divinely inspired written record of Israel's actual departure from Egypt. Finally, after all those centuries, she gets out of Egypt. She's finally born. She's been in the womb of Egypt for a long, long time, suffering a lot of labor pains. How'd you like a labor that long? (laughs) Centuries long. So finally, the exodus is really her delivery from Egypt. Um, And that's what is first recorded in chapter 12. The first thing to notice about the Passover is that it was very important to God. It was so significant to God that um, in his ongoing progressive revelation regarding redemption, which is what the Bible is all about, you know, progressive revelation about his whole redemptive program, he marked it, the Passover was so important, he marked it by a change in Israel's calendar. You know that? It says that in verse 2. This month, the month of the Passover, the tenth plague, shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Now, they had a different first month. They had a different new year before this. Now their new year was to start with Abib, A-B-I-B. You can see that in 13 verse 4, if you look over there. That is what the month used to be called back in the days of Moses. It was called Abib. The month of Abib is comparable to where we are right today, late March, April. Well, we're almost in May, aren't we? Tomorrow's May, isn't it? Wow, this year's going fast. Um, But it's springtime. And so after the Babylonian captivity, four of the 12 months for Israel 
their names were changed. Four out of the 12 were changed, and one of them was Abib became a car called Nissan. <laughs> so Abib today is called the month of Nissan, okay? And uh, with the Passover, God said, this is now going to be the first month of your year. And um, that is interesting because the redemption of Israel, which was made possible because of God's provision of a Passover lamb, brought about a change to Israel's calendar, at least her religious calendar. Okay, She also has a civil calendar, which is different. Her civil calendar, her new year begins in, uh, at, in the fall, Rosh Hashanah. That's uh, the beginning of her, her civil calendar. So she has actually two calendars. But anyway, as the redemption of Israel brought about a change to her calendar, made possible by the Passover lamb, we could also say that as the redeemer of all men, the tr- men, the true Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the basis for our calendar. The Gregorian calendar, which is used in virtually every country of this world, Today, our calendar is based on before Christ, B.C., and Anno Domino, A.D., after Christ. Now, I know that academia is trying to take Christ out of our calendars by before before common era. They take away Christ and put common. Before common era, and what's another one? Common era. We're living in the common era right now. That's boring. (laughs) common era Um, but anyway I know they're trying to take that out I don't use that I don't use I still use BC before Christ and AD and I hope you do too Um, now there are some people like the Jews do you think they like to use BC and AD no they don't Um, because they don't believe in Christ yet so they actually they will use the Gregorian calendar to stay in tune with the rest of the world for civil things and business and all that kind of stuff. But their religious calendar, do you know how they count time? When do they go back and start their, their calendar? It was creation. So this is what, 2019? Do you know what it is for the Jews? Five, yeah, you're close. I think it's, I think 5,780. Yes, they believe in a young earth. So do I. It's not the year 3 million, 300 million or whatever. And I I give them credit for that. I think that's great. So we're getting close to 6,000 years, aren't we? That this planet has been around. If they're right, you know, how how could you ever? They go by the Bible and they try to calculate. Anyway, boy, I'm going to be in trouble. Okay. <laughs> so the month of new beginnings was, uh, of course, why, why, did God, why was this so important to the Lord that he made it the first month of the year? Well, because he knew that that would be the month that his son, the true Passover lamb, would redeem not only Israel, but also Egypt, all people, the whole world, Egypt, because all mankind is in bondage to sin. And to death. Well, interestingly, you know, when we studied the life of Christ that took us 20 years, yes, it did. <laughs> First time it was eight years, the second time it took me 12 years, so that's 20. Um, but it always tickled me that the, the religious rulers wanted to kill Jesus 
right? That didn't tickle me. But um, the fact that they said, yes, we want to kill him. We can't stand his popularity and his power. But the one day of the year that we will not kill him on will be the Passover. (laughs) And what happened? You cannot overrule God, can you? Of course, he knew his son was going to not be killed on the Passover, but lay down his life on the Passover. And he did exactly on the Passover. Well, in his final judgment on Egypt, God tempered his anger with mercy by offering a way for both Israel and Egypt to escape his wrath. Exodus 12 contains God's way for all firstborn Jews and any firstborn Gentiles who would listen to his way to escape death. Um, He made them uh, that way possible by providing a, a substitution, a sin substitute, a life for a life. His instructions to Israel through Moses were that each household leader, the head of each household, the father figure or whoever it would be that was the leader, was to go and select a male yearling. What's a yearling? Like one year old, right? One, a one-year-old male lamb or kid. In other words, it could be a lamb or it could be a goat. Uh, find one among their flocks. I'm going to use lamb because of the picture of Christ. Find one in the flocks that was without blemish. Select it on the 10th day of the month. So that would be the 10th of Nisan. And then they were to take that little innocent lamb into their homes until the 14th of Nisan. So for three and a half days, it was to be a pet in the home. And then on the evening of the 14th and the evening hour for the Jews is between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. They were to do what to that little creature? They were to kill it. Yes, that's all in verses 3 to 6. Now, having lived with the lamb in their home for three and a half days, that made it very difficult for the family, as you can imagine. A lamb is a cute little creature, just adorable. And especially the children would get very attached to it. Um, and so it was hard for them to know that it, it was going to be put to death on the 14th. But the Lord, he did all this because, uh, of course, he's teaching his children in pictures. But he wanted the Passover sacrifice to be something precious to his people. It was no longer, if you look at the difference between what he says in verse 3 and what he says in verse 5. In verse 3, it was, it was a lamb for a house. You see that at the end of the verse? a lamb he wanted it to be more than just a lamb he wanted it to become their lamb look at verse five your lamb your lamb they wanted it you know to be theirs the lamb was of course a picture of the unblemished christ who lived with his disciples and other followers for how many years of his public ministry three and a half years And during that time, did not they come to dearly love him? Yes. They they just utterly fell in love with the Lord Jesus. Who couldn't? I mean, he was just wonderful. And so they were absolutely devastated by his death, which came in his young life. Like a yearling lamb is in the youth of his life. Jesus was only 33 years old. They didn't understand that he was to be their lamb. At first, they didn't understand that he was their lamb. 
Now, although the Passover was to be a corporate affair, oh, and by the way, for those three and a half days, they were to inspect the lamb, make sure there was no blemish, you know. They'd see it there constantly in their house, and they'd look and make sure that there was no blemish. Do you know that in the Passion Week of Christ, which started on Sunday, Palm Sunday, which is when he officially presented himself to Israel as her Messiah, and he let them hail him as the King of Israel and as the son of David, he let them hail him as their Messiah, saying, yes, I am. Um, That's when the lamb was selected. God selected the lamb for Israel on the 10th of Nisan, just like it says here. And then for the next three and a half days, he was examined as thoroughly as any lamb could ever have been examined. I mean, he had the, every sect of Israel was questioning him and trying to trip him up and trap him and get him to say something that they could jump all over. And they examined him and, and even the political rulers, Pilate and Herod, they examined him. And you know what they came to the conclusion at the end? Everybody came to the conclusion that there is no fault in this man whatsoever. We can't even find a pimple. Nothing. Nothing wrong with this man. man but they killed him anyway, didn't they? On what day? The 14th, which had to be Thursday. I'm going to throw that in because I do believe Jesus was crucified on Thursday. And I have uh, a tape and paper on that. But it's the only way that works for Sunday to be the 10th and Thursday to be the 14th when he was crucified. And for him to have literally spent three days and three nights. You try to get three nights if he was crucified on Friday, okay? So it's really good Thursday, (laughs) I believe. If you disagree with me, that's... Fine, you can be wrong. (laughs) You know, when you get older, you can get away with stuff like that. Um, Okay, so where was I? Oh, something I... (laughs) All right, the Passover was to be a corporate affair, okay? Because all Israel was supposed to participate in this. um, But it was also a family affair. Each family was responsible for its own sacrificial animal. I found it very interesting when I read a commentary that said, notice, go through the whole Passover account in Exodus, and you will find out that the plural word lambs is never used. It's always singular. Now, we know there were two million people, at least, that went out from Egypt in the Exodus. So that's a lot of families. That's a lot of lambs that were sacrificed on this night, thousands Maybe tens of thousands of lambs, and yet it's always singular. Why do you think the Holy Spirit inspired Moses to always make the word lamb singular? Because he was pointing to one true lamb, his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the offering of a sin substitutionary lamb began, if you remember, with the Lord God himself back in the garden when he slew one or two innocent Animals, and I believe they were probably lambs in order to cover the naked shame of the sin of our first parents. Setting the example right there that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness remission. And then we have the righteous sacrifice of Abel, who offered one lamb, and his sacrifice was accepted, his brother's was not. Uh, One lamb to cover the sins of one man himself. Now we come to Exodus 12 and we find that one lamb was offered for a household. Just one lamb for a household per family. 
In the days of Israel's temple, on the day of atonement, one day of the year, a off, an offering ram, which is a male lamb, was offered for the sins of the whole nation. So you get it? See the pro- progress? You have one lamb for one man, Abel. You have one lamb for one household, Exodus, Passover night. Then day of atonement, one lamb to cover the sins for a whole nation. Now, you know all of the sacrifices in the Old Testament only temporarily covered sins. Covered. Because they were anticipatorily looking forward to the once-for-all sacrifice that would totally cleanse them. And that came and was announced by John the Baptist when he saw Jesus approaching him and he pointed him out and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God which cometh to take away the sins of the whole world. You see the progress? One man, one family, one nation, the whole world. Well, before that, the Passover lamb was roasted and it was supposed to be roasted, look at verse 8, with fire and eaten. I don't know why God had to put this in here, but he did say that it was not to be eaten raw. Ooh, can't imagine eating raw lamb. But he said that because pagans tended to eat raw meat. He said it wasn't to be eaten raw and it wasn't to be boiled in water. It was to be roasted. But before it was roasted in fire, its blood was to be drained and put into a basin. And then it was to be applied to the doorways of their homes with a bunch of hyssop. Hyssop is a bushy plant that grows in rocky surfaces, and it was very common to find it. And what does hyssop remind you of? What happened on the day of Passover? The day of Passover. Wasn't Jesus offered vinegar on some hyssop? So you see the tie there. Okay, so they're supposed to apply the blood to the doors of their homes, and they put it on the lintel, which is the, the upper cross piece of the doorway, and then on the side posts. And, of course, if you take those two movements, you have the form of a cross. Justin Martyr. You ever hear him? (laughs) No? Okay. Well, he was a first century, shortly after Christ, he was a first century author and a um, Christian teacher. His real name was Justin, but they called him Martyr because guess what happened to him? He was martyred for his faith. He offered an explanation long ago for why the Passover lamb was to be roasted with fire instead of cooked some other way. And he says this, roasting requires two wooden stakes, one passed from end to end horizontally through the animal. You know, you can picture that like in a barbecue. And the other one vertically through the center and was attached to the lengthwise stake forming a cross interesting the animal was to be totally consumed by the family it was not just to be looked at it was to be internalized it was to be eaten you know the lord jesus in the bread of life sermon in john chapter 6 he was speaking symbolically He was not speaking literally when he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the the flesh of the Son of God and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Now, a lot of people, it says in 666, I can always remember that verse, because it's 666, it says that most of his disciples turned and walked no more with him. He said, we're not going to drink blood. I mean, would Jesus tell people to drink blood? That was an abomination to drink blood. I mean, kosher is draining all the blood out of something before you eat it. 
And he wouldn't tell them to be cannibals and eat his flesh. And so transubstantiation, which is taught in much of Christendom today, which is that the elements of communion actually become the blood and body of Christ, bases it on this, which is ridiculous. I grew up with that. That bread does not become the body of Christ. I mean, we were, we were just put in fear. If we dropped the bread, we'd be dropping the body of Christ. On the, I mean, that, it's just ridiculous. They say a miracle happened, and then the wine turns to, to his blood. No, it doesn't. I knew the ladies that cooked the bread. It did not become the body of Christ. And I did drop a piece on the floor, and I was not hit by, by lightning. <laughs> it's just bread. It's symbolic, symbolic. And he even said so in the same passage. He says, for the flesh profiteth nothing. I am speaking to you on the importance of receiving me, eternalizing me. He says, you know, um, that uh, to as many as receive him to them, uh, he gives you the power to become the sons of God. It's a matter of not just looking at what he did on the cross. You know, some churches still have hanging on the cross. That's putting him to an open shame. Shame. He died once. There's no such thing as a crucifix. Take him down. He is not on that cross anymore. The tomb is empty. He's in heaven sitting at the right hand of his father. Don't wear a little cross with Jesus on it. It's wrong. Um, so you have to receive him. That's what so many, I wish I could go in every church and say this to people, you know. It's a matter of not just up here. You've got to move. You've got to receive him. You have to. That's why he stands at the door and knock. Revelation 3.20. He's at the door knocking. Why? Because he wants you to open it and receive him. Invite him in. That's how you are born again. It's not just having head knowledge. It's having heart knowledge. Move it down 18 inches and you'll be born again. You get that? Pass that on to people because they're sitting in churches and they're not born again. But they call themselves Christians and they're just professing. They're not possessing. Well, faith was essential on the Passover night. One had to have faith, had to have faith to believe God's one way, one way to be saved from death, the death of firstborns. Anyone, uh, I mean anything, anything that was left of the lamb was to be burned with fire. You know, if they couldn't quite, if it was a small family and they couldn't eat the whole lamb, they were to burn it, whatever was left over. No leftovers, men. <laughs> it was to be burned in the morning, Exodus twelve ten. In his death, the Lord Jesus, who Paul clearly identified as our Passover, there is no doubt that Christ fulfilled the typology of the Passover lamb. No doubt, because we're told so by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. He says, for even Christ, our Passover is sacrificed for us. Um, he was touched, was Christ touched by fire? yes. We could say he was roasted, like, you know, on, uh, in, on the sticks. <laughs> he was roasted with fire, the fire of God's judgment and wrath against sin. And uh, there's no leftovers with Christ. He, he, you cannot reserve Christ for a rainy day. When you invite him in, when you take him, when you consume him, so to speak, um, you must take all of him. You can't save parts for later on. You can't say, like, when you're 20, oh, I'll take a little bit, but I don't want to live too fanatically. You know, I want to enjoy myself a little bit in this Egypt. And then when I'm 40, I'll take another bite. And then when I'm 80, okay, then I'll consume the rest of it. You cannot do that. You cannot take Jesus piecemeal. Um, and you cannot take the parts you like. Oh, I like the fact that he was such a good man, a good prophet. He was a good example, blah, 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 and take all that. And then discard the parts that you don't like, like when he said, I am the only way to the Father. You can't do that. You cannot. With Jesus, it's all or nothing. 
It's all or nothing. Um, there's no middle ground of compromise. In faith, we put our trust in him alone to save us from the death of all firstborns. Now, before I asked you if you were a firstborn, guess what? Everyone born into this world is actually a firstborn. Were you all born? How many of you were born? <laughs> How many of you came from heaven in an egg? <laughs> like Simmeramus. <laughs> Even if you are the third child in your family, you are still a firstborn. The Bible teaches that there is more than one birth. By virtue of our first birth, which is, of course, our physical birth from our mother's womb, we're spiritually dead, aren't we? We're born spiritually dead because we all inherit the stinking Adamic sin nature. But we can't blame Adam because we all would also sin by choice, wouldn't we? Yes, and it doesn't take us too long to choose that. (laughs) We're sinners by inheritance. We're sinners by choice for all of sin. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. The first Passover scenario was God's way of prophetically picturing his son, his coming Savior, the promised seed of the woman, his only begotten son, who would be the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world to save all firstborns from death by making them secondborns. That's why he said, except a man be born again. It's not enough to just have one birth. If you only have one birth, you're going to experience two deaths. You're going to die physically and you're going to die spiritually. But if you're born twice, you'll only experience one death. And even that we might escape if the rapture comes, which I hope it does soon. Because I'm getting older, so the more old I get, the more I want it to come. <laughs> now the lamb was to be eaten with, um, with bread called matzo, matzo, which means sweet or without sourness because it didn't have any leaven in it and the word leaven choretz or something like that means sour or bitter the family ate was to eat their passover meal in an atmosphere of readiness it says that they were to have in verse 11 their loins girded their shoes on their feet their staffs in their hands they were to be ready to hightail it out of there as soon as moses blew the horn and said come on let's go that stubborn man finally said let's go hurry up before he changes his mind because he had a habit of changing his mind (laughs) there wasn't enough time for them to let the bread rise because they were to be on standby uh, to hasten out of there to be prepared for departure was a demonstration of their faith in god They were believing that he said, this is going to do it. This 10th plague is going to do it. We're going to get to leave, and our our departure is going to be imminent. So they're showing faith that they believed God that this was going to be their exodus. There's another reason for them eating unleavened bread. The unleavened bread was also a picture type of Christ, wasn't it? Because was he not without sin? Leaven is a picture in the scripture of sin the influence of evil and sin. And he was a lamb without blemish or spot, it says in 1 Peter 1.19. He was the fulfillment of everything, really, the Passover picture. We'll see that if we do the Seder. Everything about it pictures him. Well, the third food of the original Passover was bitter herbs. They symbolized their hardship under Egypt's cruel taskmasters. They were also a reminder that the firstborns only lived because the poor innocent little lambs had to die so that was it was kind of bittersweet they got to live but the lambs had to die of course we live free of fear from the second death 
because Christ endured the bitterness of sin and death in our place. Well, now here's where we get to do some treasure hunting. You know, there are some real precious hidden treasures in scripture, but you have to dig a little bit and you have to develop a little bit and you sometimes have to do a word study. You know, go to the original language here, it's Hebrew, and find out what is hidden that we don't see when we just read the surface level in Greek. I mean, in uh, you don't read Greek, do you? <laughs> it's all Greek to me um, when we read it in English. So we're going to find some treasures. So stick with me, all right? Look at verses 12 and 13. In verse 12, the Lord said, this is, who's speaking? Yahweh. The Lord speaking, verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn. Who's going to pass through Egypt and smite? Who? Yahweh. Yahweh. Okay. Now look in verse 13. He says, When I see the blood, I will pass over. The first time, passing through. Second time, he says, When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you. So God would pass through Egypt in righteous judgment. And then he would pass over in gracious mercy. So you see how judgment and mercy are together? Isn't that what we had at the cross? Judgment and mercy together at the cross. The only thing that differentiated those firstborns who received judgment from those firstborns who received God's mercy, the only thing that differentiated was what? The absence or the presence of the blood of the lamb on the doors of their homes. The Lord said also in verse 13, and the blood shall be to you for a what? For a token And when he would see, he gave the blood as a token for the people, not for him. And when he would see that they put that token that he gave for them on their doors, it told him, the Lord, that they believed his word about his way to be saved. Now, a token... You could put sign there if you wanted to. It's the same thing. A token is a sign. Remember back in chapter 4 when God told Moses that he was to use his rod, his staff, for signs? And isn't that what he and Aaron did? It says again in 428 that they would use their staffs to, to produce through God signs, miracles to show the people. Well, the word sign or token is... In those passages and everywhere else in the scripture, in Hebrew, it is the word aft, A-V-T. Or some spell it O-W-T, but I'm going to use A-V-T. I don't know how you pronounce that, but I'll say aft. (laughs) That's the word for sign or token. All right? It is spelled aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Aleph, vav, tav. I may be saying it wrong but that's what it looks like <laughs> so it's avt is what it looks like in english aleph is the first letter of the hebrew alphabet and tav is the 
last letter. It's comparable to A and Z. It's comparable to Alpha Omega in Greek. And, of course, Alpha Omega is used many times in the New Testament to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? He himself referred to himself as the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, he was saying, I am the Word. He is the Word. And every letter in between. That's what he was saying. Well, in the Old Testament, it was the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts, who is called and who referred to himself as the first and last, the beginning and the end, the Aleph and the Tav. So, they're bo- you can't have two first and last, can you? That means they're both the same, one and the same, aren't they? God, Jesus, yes. Just different persons of the Godhead. So who was the one the Apostle Paul was speaking, I mean, the Apostle John was speaking to when he saw him in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, standing in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks with eyes like flames of fire, and he said to John, this one, he said to him, I am Alpha and Omega, the uh, first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, And behold, I am alive forevermore. Hmm. Who was that one? The seven golden candlesticks represent the church. Who's in the midst of the church? Christ. So he said, he he is therefore the eternal God of Israel. Is what he was telling John. I am eternal God. And yet he died. He said, I was dead. That means I died. How could he die? He became a man and he died. And yet he also says, but behold, I am alive forevermore. So if he was dead and he's alive forevermore, what does that tell you? Up from the grave. He resurrected, didn't he? So who is the Aleph and the Tav? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Exodus 12, 13, where the Lord said the blood was a token for the people a sign that they were to place on the houses so when he saw it, he would pass over. When we see that word in verse 13 of Exodus 12, guess what? It is the only place. It is not spelled A-V-T as it is token or sign everywhere else in the Old Testament. In this one place. Now it's pronounced the same. But it's spelled differently. In this one place. On this one occasion. Which happens to be in reference to the blood. Of the Passover lamb. The word token. Is only spelled. A. T. Av. Alpha. No that's Greek. Aleph. Tav. Do you get it? This one place, the blood, the token, is Alpha Omega. I would rather say A-Z, Aleph Tav. And who is that? So what, what he's saying is the blood is the token or the sign, and the token is actually Christ. It represents him. I just think that's fascinating. That's the only place it is spelled differently. Why? Why? Because it is the blood of the Aleph and Tav that brings redemption to those who by faith are under its cleansing, redemptive, protective power. 
So how do people yet today overcome the death plague of all firstborns? How? How do they overcome the death plague? I'll tell you how. By the blood of the lamb. We are washed by the blood of the lamb. Don't ever take the blood out of Christianity. Well, another interesting truth concerns the Hebrew word for Passover, which is what the Hebrews call Passover, by the way. Pasach. I don't know if that's pronounced right. Is it Pasach? Pesach? Either one. All right. It's in its verb form, passing over. It's Pasach with, a P, with an A. In, and that comes from the noun Pesach. So Pasach, Pesach. One's a verb, one's a noun. When we stutter, study other places in the scripture where we find this word pasach not in the passover context of the exodus when we find it in other places of scripture it gives us a, a better idea of what the word actually means so let's look at isaiah 31 5 or just listen to me isaiah 31 5 says as birds flying so will the lord of hosts defend jerusalem defending also, he will deliver it and passing over, which is Pasach, he will preserve it. So this verse is talking about the saving work of God in regard to Jerusalem. You don't ever have to worry about the world destroying Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents Israel. And God says, I am defending it. I, I am passing over it. But the metaphor here is that uh, like a bird, like birds, let's say mom and a daddy bird, protect the young in their nests from any potential predators. Have you ever seen the birds do that, especially this time of year? They're fluttering over, they're flying around, they're, they're hovering over the nest and they're watching and they're just on, on the lookout constantly to protect their little ones. That's the word there. Then in 1 Kings 18.21, we have the prophet Elijah asking the people of Israel. He's very frustrated with the people of Israel because they keep wavering between Baal, worshiping Baal, and worshiping the Lord. And so he asks them, how long are you going to halt, which is the word Pesach, between two opinions? Make up your mind, folks. Who are you going to serve? You know? God or Baal. And what the word opinions literally in the Hebrew is branches. So he's using a metaphor or an analogy. And he's saying that the people of Israel are like an indecisive bird. There you go again. A bird who hovers over two branches. Can't decide which one he wants to land on. Which one he wants to perch on. And so both of those give us the idea of the meaning of this word outside of the Passover context. So what it tells us is that Pesach does not mean I'm just going to skip over your house, Passover. I'm not just going to pass over and skip it like Santa Claus does <laughs> if you're a naughty boy or girl. It means to hover over, flutter over, protectively and in a you know a possessive or protective manner that's what 
Passover means. Now hold on to that thought because we'll get back to it. Well, notice that in verse 12 and also again over in verse 23, it definitely tells us that it is the Lord, all capital letters, which means Yahweh, who passed through the land of Egypt to smite the firstborns. Now, pass through is not pasach. It's a different verb. It's avar. It was also, however, the Lord who protectively passed over pasach, those homes where the blood was on the doors. He fluttered like a shielding mother hen over the house to protect the firstborns inside that home from the destroyer. Look at verse 23, the destroyer. Now, who is the destroyer? It says, the Lord will pass over the door. It will not suffer the destroyer to come in unto your houses to smite you. Who is the destroyer? Well, let's, <laughs> let's develop this. It has to be either God himself, because who, that's why I said look at verse 12 and look at verse 23. Who is the one who passes through and smites the firstborn? Yahweh, the Lord, right? He he says that clearly. I will pass through and smite the firstborn. So it's either got to be God himself is the destroyer or he uses an angel or angels, plural. Now, the word angel does not appear. It doesn't even say angel of the Lord or anything. It's just that word angel is not in this passage. But what some people do is they go over to Psalm 78 to suggest that God used angels, actually fallen angels. Because Psalm 78 contains a a uh, repeat of all the plagues of Egypt. I don't know if you looked it up when you read my notes that I've been sending out, but you go back to Psalm 78 quite a bit because it talks about all the plagues on Egypt. And then it says in verse 49, uh, it talks about God sending evil angels in the context of the Passover plagues. And that causes some Bible teachers to say that God actually did use fallen angels to carry out the death of the firstborns. Have you ever heard that before? Okay. Well, some people, you can open up commentaries and you'll read that. However, there's a slight problem in the fact that the word the destroyer is singular. And what it says in Psalm seventy-eight forty-nine is plural, angels. So why wouldn't it say the destroyers, plural? It doesn't. And that, therefore, suggests to other people that it's a reference to the king of some of the fallen angels uh, who have been held up in the bottomless pit for a while because of nasty things they did back in the book of Genesis, blah, blah, blah. And his name is actually given to us in Revelation 9 11, anybody know who the king of a host of certain very evil angels is? What his name is? I'm hearing it. Okay, Abaddon. Abaddon in the Hebrew, which means place of destruction. And his name in Greek is Apollyon, which means the destroyer. 
That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Well, other students of scripture, you want to get dizzy? You study this passage and read everything online about it. And you'll, no wonder I went into AFib. <laughs> uh, others say that the destroyer is simply death itself. Death just came, you know. The one, now, I'm not going to dogmatically, definitively give you the answer because I don't know. But one thing I do know is that it was God himself who was responsible for either directly or indirectly, whether he did it himself or whether he used angels or an angel, I don't know, but he is responsible for the death of all the uncovered firstborns of the 10th plague, right? At least we know that much. So then who was the one who protected from God's sovereign, direct or indirect smiting hand. Who was the one who protected those in the houses that had the blood on the doors? Well, it had to be someone equal to God to be able to stop God's hand. Couldn't be some creature, created being. It had to be someone equal with God. So there's only one who qualifies, and the Passover protector, therefore, would be the very lamb who would himself be slain to save all firstborns from death. The pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Only he could protect firstborns on the other side of the doors marked with the lamb's blood from the wrath of almighty God. Now all this tells us that there were more than one person of the Godhead involved in the original Passover God the Father passing through, smiting all the uncovered firstborns. God the Son hovering and protecting them that had the blood of the Lamb. And the Holy Spirit had to have been the one who convicted the people to obey the word of God about the one way of salvation from death. And don't we see the same thing going on at the cross? We do, all three members of the Trinity were involved in the cross because God the Father was pouring out all his wrath on one person, and that was his son, who was protecting, by taking all that wrath, he was protecting all the firstborns from experiencing death by shedding his sinless blood. And then we know the Holy Spirit was active that day because how in the world did the thief on the cross know You know, he went from cursing him to knowing that he was the son of God. (laughs) And how did the Roman centurion know that he was the, I mean, the Holy Spirit was doing his convicting work. So all three members were involved in both the original Passover and the Passover, the ultimate Passover, the work of the cross. Now, think about this. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem for the final Passover of his earthly life. This is the grand finale of all Passovers, right? He himself is going to be the Passover lamb. And he's coming from Bethany, where he spent the night with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he's walking the two miles to Jerusalem. It's Passion Week the week that he will die, and he crests the Mount of Olives. And from there, you can look down and see the whole city of Jerusalem, and his heart is broken because he knows what's going to happen that week, doesn't he? They're going to reject him. And so he says, and you can just hear the 
the, well, the cry in his voice when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together even as a hen gathereth her little chickens, her biddies, under her wings. And ye would not. It was willful rejection. You wouldn't. You wouldn't let me hover over you and protect you like I did on that first Passover. You would not apply the blood of the Passover lamb on the door of your house. So house of Israel, you're going to be smitten. And they... They have been for 2,000 years. But he wanted to hover over them and he wanted to protect them and he wanted them to believe him and put the blood of his, his lamb, the, him, the lamb, on the doorpost of their house, of Israel. You get it? You see what's in his mind? Because he's the one that was there on the original Passover. Well, the night of Israel's redemption in Egypt was a night... That's one place I wouldn't want to go back in time. A night spent behind the sanctuary of blood-sprinkled doors, but it was a night of dark, dark horror and grief for everyone else, you know, those outside the doors who had foolishly disregarded God's command through Moses to come under the divinely provided umbrella of protection of the slain blood of the Lamb. You know, if the Jews had been doing their job, because they were to be God's witnesses to the whole world, right? They should have been telling all the Egyptians, whether they were their taskmasters or not, their neighbors, any, any Egyptians or other people. You know, there were other people that lived in Egypt besides Egyptians and Hebrews. There were probably Midianites. There were all kinds of different people. Some of them might have also been subjected to the Egyptians. I don't know, but they should have been passing word. You know how you can avoid the death angel tonight? I said death angel because so many people do, but whatever. <laughs> you can avoid death tonight? Just put some blood of a lamb on your door. And so they, you know, and I'm sure that there were some Egyptians, we know there were, because they went out a mixed multitude. So there were some who did do that. They did listen to the Lord. Um, uh, But it was foolish not to, isn't it? It's just foolish not to listen. I don't know why so many people in the world just will not listen to the Lord and do such a simple thing. Come under his umbrella of safety. But as the, as the destroyer passed through the land, wails of anguish could be heard coming from those homes where no lamb was slain. Every, you know, a newborn baby, if it was a firstborn, it was gone. All the, uh, even the beasts, the firstborns. Um, and they could have been spared if they had simply believed the word of the Lord. Um, let me skip some things. And so those inside, they sat quietly waiting, you know, came at midnight. And then they waited out the night knowing that death and terror, they didn't dare leave the safety of their home. Death and terror was on the outside, but inside they were safe. They were secure, weren't they? Jesus is not only pictured us to us by the Passover lamb and by the token blood and by the cross on the door and by the roasting of the lamb and by the matzo and by the bitter herbs. I mean, everything points to him but you know what he is also pictured by the door the door itself didn't he say in john 10 9 i am the door by me if any man enter in he shall be saved those within the door went through the door they were safe inside it's like um you know not only was the one door to noah's ark a picture of christ how many doors to noah's ark how many brazen serpents lifted up in the 
wilderness to look at to be saved from the venom of the vipers? How many? One. How many ways to be saved from the death of all the firstborns? Do you think God says there's only one way? Not all roads lead to heaven. He did it in so many different pictures to tell people one way. My way. Not your way. My way. Um, So as the door to Noah's safe ark was um, a picture, also the doors in Egypt were a picture of Christ. And then also he is the door to the sheepfold, isn't he? He is the only door to the Father. I am the way, he said. The life. The, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, the Passover is the oldest holiday that's still celebrated in the world. You know how long, other than that time when they didn't celebrate and they should have? It's been going on for 3,500 years. That's older than Christmas. That's older than resurrection. That's older than 4th of July <laughs> or whatever other holiday you want to point to. It's the oldest. Um, God spoke it through Moses to celebrate it as a memorial in verse 14 throughout their generations. And then he goes on and gives instructions about the next feast, which would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a seven-day feast. Um, They were not to eat any leavened bread on Passover, which was Nisan 14. But then from the 15th to the 21st, That's another seven days. They were also not to eat any leavened bread. And that's what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It comes right on the heels of Passover, doesn't it? Believers in what it is teaching, of course, one thing is that Jesus had no sin. The unleavened bread pictures him. But it also is telling us that believers in the Lord are to put away all sin from our lives. All evil influence from our lives. Not only were they to not eat leaven, put it inside, but they were not even to have it in their homes. They were to remove every little scrap of leaven that might be laying around in their homes. I can't imagine why leaven would be on the floor. Don't you make bread with it, right? Yeast, but anyway, if there was a piece on the floor, they had. that's where we get spring cleaning. You know, this woman thing, you know, we have to clean our house, houses at spring. I got the bug really bad this year, but I won't go there. Okay, so um, so they were to do that. They were to clean their homes because it's a picture of how we're supposed to, once we're saved, we get all the sin out of our lives. The Hebrew word for leaven means bitter or sour. And don't sinful people, aren't they so often so bitter and sour? Mm, it's such a shame. Leaven causes dough to become puffed up <laughs> so that it actually has more volume but not more weight. And that is such a perfect picture of a person full of pride. Pride causes a person to be puffed up in their own imaginations, thinking more highly of themselves than they ought, so that they have more volume, but less weight. (laughs) Now, Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread were so closely connected that they were considered often one feast. Now, there's actually another feast that comes before the Feast of Unleavened Bread is finished on the 21st of Nisan. And what's that other feast? First fruits. And that is when Jesus resurrected from the dead. Okay? 
It comes on the 17th of Nisan. Jesus was crucified on the 14th, three days later, on the 17th, the Feast of First Fruits, which they celebrated because it was the first harvest. They were celebrating the first of the harvest, which was usually barley, and they were rejoicing because the first fruit of the barley was a promise to tell them there's going to be more fruit to follow. Jesus resurrected on the Feast of First Fruits because it says he is the first fruits of the resurrection. If he rose from the dead, I got good news for you. There's going to be more who follow. And after he rose, others did follow to show us. Remember those graves opened up and people rose from the dead? Now that I wanted to see. That I'd like to see. But you know the, the feasts are so amazing. How many feast days did God give to Israel? Of course. <laughs> Seven is perfect number. There are four spring feasts. Do I have this right or you're looking this way? Four spring feasts and there are three fall feasts. And, it, uh, and everything, they all picture Jesus. Some part of Christ's redemptive story. He, he died the first one. Of course, the year starts with the first one, Passover. He died on the feast of Passover. He is our Passover lamb. He was buried for three days because he was, uh, you know, the unleavened one. He had no sin in him. It didn't matter that he was buried because his body wouldn't corrupt because there was no sin in him. He rose from the dead on the feast of first fruits. What's the next feast in the calendar? The feast of Shavuot, Pas- uh, Pentecost. Pentecost, 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, was when the church was born, right? Remember, the Holy Spirit came down, there were little flames of fire on their heads, there was an earthquake and all that, and everybody could speak different languages to get people the gospel. Do you know what else happened on the Feast of, First, uh, Feast of Pentecost? The, Israel was born as a nation at the foot of Mount Sinai, 50 days after the Exodus. She got to Sinai and the earth quaked and fire came down on the mountain and God and it was the giving of the law. And that was really the birthday of Israel. Isn't that amazing? Well, then there's no feasts in the summer months. There's no more feasts until the last three, which don't come until the fall. What is the empty space of the summer? The church age. The church age. And then starting in Rosh Hashanah in the fall, right around my birthday, <laughs> the trumpet blows. That's the Feast of Trumpets. And you can argue with me all day if you want to, but I believe with all my heart. And so do the Jews for Jesus, and so do the friends of Israel, <laughs> that that is going to be the rapture of the church. Oh, no man knows the day or the hour, Catherine. I know. I know, but they don't ever exactly know when the Feast of Trumpets is going to happen because it's so tied to the moon. So they actually celebrated on two different days. And when he said, no man knows the day or the hour, that was an expression used in that day to speak of the Feast of Trumpets. He was giving them a little wink. <laughs> and then, of course, there's the other two. You know, um, I can't think of them right now. Day of Atonement. What's the other one I'm missing? Tabernacles, yeah, yeah. And that, but they all picture Christ. It's so amazing. You have to know the feast to understand God's whole overall plan. 
Okay, so anyway, um, after that night, I mean, it was awful. They're inside their houses, and they hear all this wailing, etc., etc. Pharaoh, you know, his son, who would take over the throne, dies, and he gets up in the middle of the night, and guess who he calls for? Someone he said, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. Now he's calling for him. Moses and Aaron. And upon their arrival, he says in verse 31, 32, Rise up and get ye forth from among my people, both ye and the children of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as ye have said. Also take your flocks and your herds, as ye have said, and be gone. Remember, no hoof left behind. (laughs) He says, okay, I give up. I give in. Get out of here. Get out of here. Take your wives, take your children, take your flocks, take everything. I just want you out of my hair. Go. God finally did as he had predicted, right? He said all along that, that Pharaoh would actually let the people go. It would take a lot of work, but he would finally do it. And he even had predicted that he would drive them out. Back in chapter 6, verse 1, God said, he will even drive you out of his land. And the Egyptian people, you think they were eager to get rid of the Hebrews? <laughs> yes, they were also very eager to get rid of them. It says that they wanted them out of their land in haste before they're all dead. Look at the end of verse 33. Get out of here before every one of us dies. Well, after demanding Moses and Aaron, this is shocking, to leave and take all Israel with them, God asks the two men of God to do something interesting. Bless me, he says, verse 32. Bless me. Isn't that so typical of people that hate Christians, and yet when they're in trouble, what do they do? Will you please pray for me? (laughs) That's what he does. He said he was fearful of losing his own life as his eldest son had just lost his life. He wanted to be under the blessings of this powerful God of the Hebrews. He didn't want to be under the curse of his plagues anymore. So he asked Moses and Aaron, bless me. It is such a shame that this man still put himself first, isn't it? Bless me. That is selfish. Why do you say bless my land or bless my other children or what he really should have done? He really should have done. uh, He should have fallen down on his face in repentance and said, bless God. You know, he, he should have blessed God and turned to God and asked for his forgiveness. Do you think God would have forgiven him? If he had had genuine repentance, absolutely up to a man or woman's dying breath, God will forgive. But he didn't do that. It's just too bad. He did not acknowledge the Lord as the sovereign of the universe, who had proven himself over and over again that he is worthy of all honor and glory and dominion and power and and worship and obedience. He didn't do that. Uh, He did not put his faith in Yahweh. If he had, he would have been blessed. How do I know he didn't really genuinely get saved here when he said, bless me? <laughs> because typical to his nature, what did he do? Changed his mind, and pretty soon he pursues after them. Well, the exodus took place so quickly that the children of Israel didn't have enough time hardly to do anything. They had to just pack up their unleavened bread and their kneading trays, and they threw, they wrapped them up in their clothes. They put it in a bundle. They threw the bundle over the back, and they headed out. They were free. They were being delivered, and they were going to leave as soon as they could. And uh, it was as the Lord predicted, because remember, he had said they would not leave empty-handed. So what did the Egyptian people do? They gave them. It's amazing. This is really amazing. But it says God gave them 
favor in the eyes of the Egyptian people. So they actually gave them their silver and their gold and their raiment. And they just said, take it, take it, take it, get out of here. And God made sure that after serving for hundreds of years with no wages, that they were compensated. Remember how he even saw to it that Jochebed was paid for nursing her own son, Moses. We did the same thing with Israel. He gave her all this wealth. He said to Abraham back in Genesis 15, when your people finally come out of their land of affliction, they're going to come out with great substance. What did he use that great wealth for later on in the wilderness? To build house of God to build the tabernacle you see God always takes care of his people doesn't he he does let's pray yeah let's pray (laughs) father thank you for this lesson thank you again for the patience of your people and for their hunger and thirst to know you better thank you for the application for this lesson because it certainly is an easy one the lamb was sacrificed christ is our passover he was sacrificed for us and so we know that whether jew or gentile old or young male or female rich or poor the only issue that night in egypt was whether or not the blood the token of the blood was on the doorpost it didn't matter at all how sincere a person was it didn't matter how religious a person was it didn't matter what he had done in his past it didn't matter what his nationality was good deeds didn't count for anything diplomas degrees great resumes none of that mattered if the blood of the lamb was not on the door death would strike it was absolutely sure to happen on the other hand No matter how sinful a person might have been, including Pharaoh, if that person was able to demonstrate enough faith to place the lamb slain blood upon the door, death spared him. And we know that the requirements for mankind have not changed since that night in Egypt. God still demands a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. But the wonderful truth is that God himself provided that sacrifice in his own beloved sinless son who was the only one who could completely satisfy your holy justice and make the necessary payment for sin. So we thank you, Father, that the price has now been fully and completely paid. And I pray that everyone here is truly born the second time. If not, May she take care of that today by opening the door to her heart and inviting you in because you will come in and sup with her and her with you. And that's your promise. We love you, Jesus. Go with every woman. Bring us all back safely next week to again open your word and look further at the wonderful Passover you provided for us. In your name, Jesus, we do pray. Amen.